Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO, and today we're back in the podcast studio here at the Project Purple office. And I've got a new friend on the phone with me, Mr. Ray Angeloni. Ray, thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple Podcast. Thank you, Dino. Glad to be here. And for our listeners at home, Ray and I were doing, before we hit the record button here, we were playing a little bit of Connect the Dots. Uh, I always, uh, I love having everyone on the podcast, but it's, it gives me a little bit of special pleasure. We were just talking about our, our family's history, and uh, we both come from the, a similar region. Our families do, not us individually, uh, raised up in the Boston area, but we come from a similar region in Italy. So it's always great to meet new people, Ray, but also to know that you know, we've, we've possibly, as we said, we might be related, you know, six or seven uh, generations if we go back. Possibly there's some linkage there. Agreed. We all are in some way. Yes, yes, yes. Well, Ray, as we always do with our guests here on the podcast, is the first couple of minutes is your opportunity to share with our audience. And we've got a very vast audience that listens to the podcast, your story. And I know I mentioned to the audience here previously that you're from the Boston area, but with that, I'll let you take it. And as I always tell our guests, you can share as much of your background and bring us up to speed of where you are today. And we'll go from there. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, I, I'm, it's part of my mission to share this information. I'm an open book. I'll tell everybody as much or, or as little as they can handle, uh, right down to the most detailed symptoms. But uh, my story is kind of, um, well... I don't know, I guess they're all unique and interesting, but I started in 2018 uh, doing sprint triathlons. I did three of them in 2018, um, and uh, I've always been kind of a runner, a basketball player, and I started my own business in 2018. Uh, things were going really well. The only complaint I ever had was just a little bit of GI uh, abnormalities, and you know, I chalked it up to everything that you could imagine that was more likely than pancreatic cancer. Um, in short, uh, I thought, geez, maybe I swallowed too much pond water swimming at, mm-hmm. you know, Walden or Farm Pond in Sherbin here. Or maybe I was getting older and becoming lactose intolerant, or maybe I should stop drinking so much IPA. Um but all of these things were just throwing my digestive system off a little bit, I thought. And uh, it, I finished a you know, mile-long swim once at Farm Pond, and uh, my wife was there. And she's like, how are you doing? I'm like, ah, I just feel like I have a rock in my stomach. And um, the funny thing was, over the last two, three years, I could feel a little olive-sized tension in my abdomen. And I thought, maybe that's my abs getting stronger. Maybe that's gas building up. Um, and of course, as 2018 went on and I got into January, 2019 with a business trip looming to India, um, my, my Israeli neighbors may have saved my life when they had us over for, uh, brunch, which included a lot of really high fat, delicious Mediterranean food. Um, previously I'd been a disciplined, low fat eater. And of course, one of the things that can happen with pancreatic cancer is the tumor can block the pancreatic duct, which prevents the enzymes from getting down to digest fats. And so that night it all came back up and um, decided with a business trip looming, I'd better get it checked out. Um, I went to outpatient care 
they did some blood work, they did some MRIs, and they told me I should go to the ER and get checked in. And I said, nah, nah, <laughs> for what, maybe gallstones? And I went home, went to bed, and um, decided the next morning, well, I better get it checked. And um, at Newton Wellesley Hospital, they took blood work again, admitted me. Um, about a year this week, uh, in fact, a year this week, I was in the hospital at Newton Wellesley and about, I was probably in a CAT scan at this moment a year ago and then got the diagnosis of, um, you know, they, it's a teaching hospital, so they come in, the, the doctor comes in with a phalanx of interns and you go, okay, this is going to be interesting. And I was fully expecting gallstones and a gallstone surgery, uh, gallbladder surgery. And they said, nope, we, we found something and uh, it's a tumor and we've had a tumor meeting and, um, you know, we want to get you into the program as fast as possible. It, it's a 2.8 by 3.2 by 3 centimeter tumor in the head of the pancreas. And um, so they quickly put me through other procedures to get a port in and get um, a stent put in to open up my pancreatic duct and, um, you know, rapidly moved into um, the diagnosis, which they said was stage three, um, historically inoperable uh, because it was involved with two blood vessels and um, 50% encasement of the two blood vessels. Uh, and, you know, some quick research. I always, one of the things I learned along the way, by the way, is beware of Dr. Google. Uh, Dr. Google will tell you the most worst case circumstances that probably don't apply to you. Um, and anyway, there's no use reading those because in the last five years, the research has progressed such that with my diagnosis five years ago, it would have been a continuum to, to um, uh, metastasis or, um, or, you know, death, basically. And by the skill and research of today's um, doctors, um, they invited me into a clinical trial involving Losartan, which is a standard blood pressure medication. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and they realized that, um, uh, you know, they put me on that and... Um, I'm giving you my whole story, Dino. Yeah, so no, I'm, I'm taking notes, Ray. So I'm going to circle back once I, once you're done. Okay. So don't worry about it. All right. So I'll continue the uh, mile wide story here for a minute or two. And um, they put me on the Losartan study, eight doses of chemo, radiation, uh, the, the uh, strategy that the doctors called the cut, burn, fry, uh, poison approach. Um, and went through radiation and then surgery, a Whipple surgery. Um, my doctors are amazing. I think of them as like the Avengers, uh, Dr. Kadan, the surgeon, Dr. Hong, the radiologist, and Dr. Blazkowski, the oncologist, and then the many support staff. Um, so after the rounds of treatment, they determined that I was an edge case now for operation, and they went ahead and they call it exploratory surgery because they don't want to make any promises. And they went ahead and did surgery, did the Whipple, and said it was a successful surgery, removing the tumor, tumor and 
with 23 lymph nodes testing negative that, uh, you know, it's a historically unlikely outcome and I'm incredibly lucky. So I'm now in a period of six month scans, the watch and wait, because we know it's aggressive. Yep. So, so I'll pause there. So I just want to back up a little bit and I do have a question. So currently the first question is that you're not on treatment. So you did the six, eight doses of chemo radiation, got you to the Whipple, all the nodes came back negative. So there is no evidence of disease right now? Um, right. I'm still on Losartan. It continues for a while. Uh -huh. And I just had my first six-month CT this week. So I'll find out this week how well or poorly, whatever. Let me rephrase it. Uh, we'll find out the results this week. And one thing I've learned is you go one fact-based step to the next. Mm -hmm. So I've learned to live with this uncertainty and live my life in six month intervals and enjoy the moments in between and not let the worry of scans or recurrence uh, take over my living. That's powerful, Ray. Thank you. It's real. Uh, this turned me into a transcendentalist. You know, I, I think it's strange coincidence that I used to swim at Walden as a kid and even now uh, for <laughs> triathlon and, you know, the Thoreau was so much about living today and living intentionally, and that has become uh, a core resonant theme in my life. Um, I was always the kind of engineer numbers type of person, and now I'm really focused on that engagement and the living and the compassion and uh, making sure that we don't take days and moments for granted. Um, and just do the best I can with the time we have. As, as Gandalf said in The Fellowship of the Ring, we do the best we can with the time we have. That's powerful. And I think it's something, Ray, that I've talked to a lot of survivors on this podcast, and you can go back, and I've mentioned this a couple times on the podcast, talking to survivors and fighters, but that mindset is so critical. Yeah, I love it. Um, mindset is crucial. Uh, when my When I got the diagnosis from my oncologist and he went through the treatment plan. And at the end, he said, any questions? I said, yeah, only the big ones. And he, he said, well, it's going to be an uphill battle, but what depends next is how well you tolerate the first round of chemo. Mm -hmm. And that snapped me into a high. That's right. Let's take the mindset of one baby step at a time. And yeah, we have a vision, you know, to, to health and future, but the reality is down to today. And I flipped my mindset into more and more incremental thinking, smaller and smaller time slices of my day, which I found with the big gloomy picture, I could still have a happy moment, uh, you know, with, with, with my wife hiking or taking my dog outside or hanging out with my kids or coffee with friends, and then you could have a good moment, and you could have a series of good moments in a good day, and then you could have a good day, and then you could have a series of good days. So you could rebuild well-being even if you weren't healthy. Um, and I took an online class uh, on well-being with uh, Dr. Santos. You know, it's a MOOC um, uh, online through Coursera, and she talks about happiness and well-being and realized how much of that is in our control. That the genetics of it, according to their research, is that 
um, 50% of our happiness is our genetic set point, 10% is circumstances, and 40% is what we do about it. And so that 40% was in my control. That's that's a lot. Yeah. And I, I really found that I could have a good run. Uh, you know, you have your breakdown moments, uh, but you could have a good run during the week or even during treatment when you have a positive mindset. For survivors or for people struggling, the things that are in our control is how we think about this, uh, how we treat our bodies through nutrition and sleep and stress, how we engage with our friends and family if hopefully we have a good support network. And I learned that all of these are non-medical factors that we can influence, so we're not just simply a victim of circumstance. That's so compelling to hear you say that. Because you just said something, you know, the things we can control are the important ones. And the things that we can't control, I think as, as human nature, right? I think whether you're, you're battling something healthy, people tend to think of the latter of, oh, I can control these other things that you don't have any, or they worry, I should say, about these things that they don't control. But if we all worried about what we can control, how we eat, the relationships we have, the things we do, working out, staying healthy, staying positive, educating ourselves. If we worried about all those things, the things we can't control, how much different life would be? Yes, I think it would be a good template. So cancer or no cancer, uh, there's no going back to, you know, running on the treadmill in the rat race. Um, there's living intentionally and there's acceptance of um you know, we don't all have open-ended, none of us have open-ended time. That's a stark realization we should all carry with us. And maybe we would just be a little bit kinder, gentler, more present uh, to the people around us, to the, you know, person working at the coffee counter, to the people that we interact with at work and our family and friends and um, people on the other side of the ideological divides, uh, Yankees fans, for example, yeah. we should just be a little kinder and gentler and understanding and have compassion built into our days because we should realize none of us have open-ended time. Yeah. And I, I think if we all realize that the world would be a lot happier place for a lot of people. I think so. And a lot of the conflicts would go away because, yeah. um, when I got this diagnosis, I realized all the little peccadillos or little things that used to bug me. Um, you know, being from New England, we're known for a little bit of road rage. Uh, that's gone. Um, somebody takes my spot, cuts me off. I just wave them in and wish them a good day. Um, rage, um, anger, envy, jealousy, um, those are just gone. There's just no time for those. Um, when you realize you've got, you know, when I had the diagnosis and the typical um, median lifespan is about a year and a half. Um, so that kicked me into urgency of not spending time in negative ways and instead spending them in positive ways. And so that's two halves of the same coin, two sides of the same coin. But um both get me, got me to a better place of well-being on a day-to-day basis, and I wish that for others. I wish that lesson for people around who watch this. Um, 
that they could gain some peace and well-being in their life by watching, hopefully, and learning from, you know, my experience. That's my hope. Then it's not all for naught. Well, we hope we share that message that you just shared with me and our audience takes that to heart um, because I think it's a powerful message. And I wouldn't say we've, we haven't heard it before on this podcast, not in those words, but it's so powerful, Ray. And I, I think, you know, I've got a couple questions here and I, I want to back up a little bit. So you said in 2018, you were doing these sprint tries and, and that's kind of, you know, when you started to experience these GI abnormalities. If we go back, even let's say 2010, were you active and did you know? I mean, I know this is kind of a loaded question and I always ask everyone because it's it's fascinating to me to understand the pathway before because we don't have a roadmap of how these things progress. And what mm -hmm. we do find is that everyone is different, first of all, and also hindsight's always 2020. And I know you mentioned, you know, you had these GI abnormalities as you were doing these these sprint tries, but you also said, you know, for about two to three years, there was like this rock in your stomach. So were there things prior to, was life different? I know you said you started your own business. So, you know, was it just stuff that you kind of now looking back again, hindsight's 2020, and it's easy to say this now, that there was stuff back in 2015, maybe that was maybe an early sign, whether it was one of the, I, I, I wish we had a vlog, I always say this, I, I'm taking a ton of notes, but I'm doing air quotes here. You know, one of the symptoms, whether it was a rash or, you know, um, a GI issue that just was present for a little while, then went away. Yeah, the earliest strange symptom I can come up with was that little rock I told you about in my abdomen, and mm. it would, I would feel it when I was doing back exercises on the, you know, big exercise ball. Yeah. Where you lay on your abdomen. Yeah, the BOSU like, balls. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I'd be like, what's that weird, you know, I don't remember that, but I thought, you know, I, it, you're exactly right. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Of course it wasn't an ab muscle or of course it wasn't gas because it was always there. Um, but now that's clear. But at the time it was just like, eh, well, I'm fine. You know, I'm perfectly active and healthy and I'm busy. In, in short, my mental model uh, didn't account for me having cancer. In fact, there is no cancer in my immediate family. Hmm. Mo I was mostly vegetarian. I was active. I thought I'm not the prototype. I even skipped my age 50 colonoscopy because I'm like, no, nah, I'm not the risk profile. Um, and that was the earliest symptom I had. Um, doctors will periodically say things like, have your stools changed as part of the battery yeah. of questions you get in a physical exam. Yeah. And I was like, eh, eh, no. I mean, because I couldn't, I didn't have the knowledge to go, yeah, that's a change because the change is so gradual that the experience of bloating and then and then what they call, you know, dumping, and everyone can imagine what that is, Yeah, where your body just lets everything out at once. Um, those are kind of subtle, and, you know, you, you feel good 99% of the time. So I'd say that was my, that little rock in my stomach. I didn't get a rash. I didn't get a back pain. Um, I didn't have stomach aches. And 
Um, so you didn't turn no, yellow at all? I mean, no yellow, no jaundice, wow. nothing. I didn't have ability responses, you know. An appetite was fine. I mean, and so you were, so it sounds like you were working out for a while then. So weight loss or you didn't notice anything uh, abnormal, abnormal about like losing weight or getting, you know, sometimes we've had people on the podcast and they say, well, I was, you know, they, they were sedentary before and then they decided to change their lifestyle and become more active and change their diet. And then they lose a lot of weight. And then, you know, coincidentally, then they get diagnosed and they're like, well, I didn't notice anything because I had changed up my lifestyle. So, you know, the, the weight loss uh, wasn't necessarily initially related to the disease progression, but more so to the change of lifestyle. So there wasn't anything in that area. No, and I've heard stories like that, but I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm, I'm a tall, lean guy, and so I... If anything, I started to gain a little bit, or what I thought was gaining in my yeah. stomach. But what was really happening was, as I was getting bloated, and my you know stomach was expanding, my intestines were expanding. So I, um, I would work out harder. Yeah, and I would eat, eat less fat. Eat less, yeah. And um, that that was the yeah. So that that's that symptom doesn't help people aside from if you connect it to then like having you know abnormal stools which is an unfortunate question for doctors to ask because everyone that i talk to says you know yeah i flush and forget that's it yeah Yeah, Uh, no one sits there well you know and i think this is something that i'll give you my example here i think i relate to when my dad was battling i think pancreatic cancer as a whole is a very undignifying disease And how do I define that here for this example? Breast cancer, and my mom's had it, so I can use the correlation here, is almost like a glamour cancer. Granted, you know, women have their breasts removed, but they have reconstruction surgery for the most part, and then they can still look beautiful and and still feel like themselves in some way. And I've never gone that, and I don't want to offend anyone, but from my perspective, in my opinion, as I look at it, and that's what my mom went through. When I look at my dad, in terms of undignifying, as we're just talking about, no one no one looks at their stool when they go to the bathroom. But those are the things I think with this disease, like you have to, right? Like, and and what what are you gonna do? Talk to your friends and say, hey, yeah, how's uh, you know, you watch that Yankee game, Red Sox game last night? No, I was busy checking out my stool as I went to the bathroom, you know, and I had this. GI issues. I'm having these GI issues. So it's, it's almost like it's uh it's something so taboo, you know, that people don't want to talk about, nor do they want to go venture down that road, right? You know, what yeah. checking your stool. So it's just like this, I always felt like with my dad and I remember the doctors would come in and they would talk to him about like, you know, bowel movement. And you know, that's not something you talk to as much as you love your doctor. <laughs> it's still kind of an uncomfortable conversation. Let's put it that way. Right. Uh, a friend of mine who's a very savvy technologist said that one of our best hopes will be smart toilets. Yeah. They, they can actually sense a change over months or years and tell you something as a leading indicator. Because we know with pancreatic cancer, the, the months matter. You've, oh. The sooner you find it, the sooner you have a chance of cure. Um, 
And unfortunately, as you know, and I'm sure all your guests say this, that by the time it's found, it's often too late. I was at stage three. Um, and, you know, I was a proactive. I, I tried to do everything right. Um, so, and I would, if, if somebody could have explained to me what to look for, or even better, technology that just did it for me, um, just imagine what that would do for people, uh, especially, you know, do you have a Fitbit or a Garmin yeah. or anything? And um, how powerful those are to go, hey, you know, you're, you're at 9,000 steps, your goal is 10,000, and you just want to get that 10,000 step. And if you could get that kind of feedback from your smart toilet that's going, hey, your blood sugar is really good, you're doing something right, um, those leading indicators that support your activities would be really good for health. And then, of course, finding, you know, cancers or blood in the stool. So I'm a little bit of those, uh, of the camp of uh, technology does more good than harm. And here's a case where I believe it could really do some good. That's such a fascinating story and example to use because I've never thought about it that way. But, you know, I, I, I love it because I think the more that we can embrace technology, I mean, naturally people, most people have some sort of smartphone, right? And, and the smartphones now have all these health apps. And there's been a lot of, and I've been in many discussions about this concept of, you know, using the health data that people have, whether it's from their smartphone, when they use it to work out, or as you mentioned, the Fitbits, and now you've got these watches that people are wearing, and the Garmin's and these devices that are, you know, gathering all this data on us internally, and what that data is and how it's interpreted, mm -hmm. and using the data for positive. But think about that if we even go a step further you know, with our, with our to toilets and having a smart toilet. That's just such a great idea, Ray. Uh, hey, do you know, let's um, put the rest of the conversation under NDA and we'll invent that toilet. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll write the app and we'll call it, instead of Fitbit, we'll call it the Shitbit. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that. You know, uh, give I'm, us feedback. Uh, wouldn't it be wonderful, though, if you could, you know, just hang a device in your in your bowl and have it yeah. connect to an app. I can just imagine how, well, some people would be grossed out by it, but anyone that's heard about pancreatic cancer or, or colon cancer, or um, and one of the doctors told me that they can detect like five or six different types of cancer directly out of stool. Yeah. So that would be fascinating to, I mean, the way things are changing, maybe, you know, Five to 10 years, maybe we'll have that kind of technology or less, I would hope. Yeah, it's so fast. I mean, the technology, and I've, again, um, we've looked at like the Fitbit stuff. And I know there's there's a couple of trials, clinical trials for pancreatic cancer that they have Fitbits on patients. We are hoping to roll something out uh, similarly in the next uh, couple months that I, I can't really talk to too much about, but using the same type of technology um, for early detection and for, for patients on the disease. Because I think it, we're, we are living in such a fascinating time when it comes to technology. So to your point, with the toilets, I think is a great idea, Ray, because there is so much to be learned and technology when it is embraced for the good can do some amazing things. And that's where I think you mentioned something earlier and I made a note here 
you know, five years ago, this would have been a different type of conversation, but there's so much that has happened in the last five years. And that's something, you know, you mentioned another thing about Dr. Google, which we'll talk about here a little bit, you know, that I think patients go to the hospital, they get these diagnoses, and then they go to the internet right away and they try to become, you know, their own doctor in a way, which can be good and bad. And I think a lot right. of times it's more the bad, but there's so much happening. So I, I think that's the one thing that's lost in all of this. And, and the stuff that's happening isn't published yet, isn't out to the public, to the masses. There might be, like I said, there might be a clinical trial where they are using new technologies or new medications that just hasn't gotten far enough where it can be out to the masses. So there is a lot going on. And I wanted to just come back to something that you said, um, you know, when you originally went to Newton Wesley, did you stay at Newton Wesley or did you get yeah, shifted it's, around it's, into it's another? Newton Wesley. Yep. Um, uh, and yes, I stayed there. So I got admitted. I did some quick research and, you know, we're in the uh, fantastic area of the world. Great area for healthcare. Uh, yeah. So at Mass General, I had... Uh, Newton Wellesley, and um, it, it does help to have knowledge about some of these. And of course, um, you know, it's like I have friends and family in the medical space. So just touching base with them and finding out, you know, where are the good hospitals that, that don't have a lot of uh, side effects. And, you know, so anyway, I ended up at Newton Wellesley, and I'm really glad I did. I know there are other options out there, and I'm sure they're wonderful. Um, but I like my team of doctors. They work across Dana-Farber, across mm -hmm. Mass General, across Newton-Wellesley to build the best team. And that is something I was totally uh, for. And I didn't, uh, you know, go front brain thinking about that. But that that is what happened. And that has worked really well for me. Well, the Boston area is probably, and I'm going to throw this out there, I don't have the statistics to back this up, so this is just my personal opinion, is probably one of the best areas in the world for health and science. I mean, and, and I know from our experience here at Project Purple, a lot of those guys up there work a lot in tandem. You know, not a, not a lot of them are necessarily siloed, but um, I've been to a lot of meetings in the Boston area for the disease, and, you know, I know the guys at Dana, know the guys at Newton, they know the guys at BI, they know the guys at MGH, and sometimes a lot of those guys will work together on certain projects, um, you know, and so, you know, if there's a place to get sick, and I always say this to people that live in the New England area, because Boston's pretty accessible, whether you drive, train, or plane it, it's a great area to live if you get sick, because there's so many resources readily available versus other parts of the country. And I think that's one of the benefits of where we are, we're in Connecticut, you're up in Massachusetts, is that we've got excellent healthcare and we've got multiple options. Yes, indeed. Couldn't agree more. Uh, I'm aware that people come from all over to get here, so I'm lucky that I just have a 40-minute drive. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Ray, you said something uh, before. You own your own business. What type of business is that? It's a consulting business, so I really focused in agile methodology for software and systems development. And before that, were you in corporate America? 
Yeah, before that, I've worked in various technology companies in the area. I spent most of my career, over 16 years, at EMC and data storage. And um, I've worked in other, you know, cloud storage-type environments since then. And um, uh, just recently decided that my knowledge and experience was more valuable outside Mm -hmm. than inside. And uh, I enjoy learning and teaching. Um, And, you know, as an agile consultant, one of my goals is to just help organizations and people out of chaos. And uh, so I really love my work and uh, feel like it has a mission and a calling to it. So I continue to do it now. So this is something you've been doing your whole life, and then you decide to start your own business, and then you right. get this diagnosis, which you know you just said something, you know, teaching and learning and getting people out of chaos, and what just happened to you personally? You know, right, there's a good connection there, Dino, for sure. Uh, it, my my personality is one of being a helper, um, and. You know, I, I go all the way back to my earliest part of my career. I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, it's just because what I enjoy doing, teaching, learning, helping. And I do that uh, as part of my consulting now in technology and methodology. Um, and I do that. I'm, I guess this is a new area for me. Um, uh, Newton Wellesley did ask for my story to be published, and I... I thought about it. I said, geez, hmm, do I want to be a poster child? And do I want my story all over the web? And will people be judging me on it? And I said, you know what, screw it. Yes, I do. So I have been active. I gave them permission to publish my story. And uh, I'm, uh, you know what, today is January 10th in uh, Massachusetts. It's the registration day for the Pan Mass Challenge. Yeah. And I, I'm planning on registering. I've never awesome. done it before, but 192 miles, uh, I'm willing to tackle that and publicize my story. Uh, I just hope there's a Project Purple shirt in my future for my, uh, well, my bike well, support team. I got, I got a couple bike shirts. We, we, we can take care <laughs> of you. We do some biking. We got the Five Borough Bike Tour that we're a charity partner with, but Pan Mass is a great event. And uh, yeah. you know they, they've done that for quite some time. And it's one of the, the leading bike events in the in the country, actually. And uh, it's, a, it's a great event. We've actually had a couple of our alumni do that event. Um, so yeah. it's, a, it's a great event. I'm just uh, hoping I can find a shirt, or maybe we can design it. Uh, we'll, Instead we'll, of Pan Mass Challenge, I want it to say Pancreas Mass Challenge. We can come up with something. <laughs> we can definitely put something together for you, right? <laughs> Without a doubt. Yeah. So yeah, I bring that up that that comment that I meant, you know, teaching and learning out of chaos, because I can say for me, Ray, for the survivors that we've talked to. And this is a little airy, and, and I've said this before on the podcast area in the sense that like the hair on my back of my neck is standing up a little bit when I, when I say this and I think about this is because there's this arc. Like we've had a gentleman and I'll give one example. He was the PT instructor for the Connecticut fire school. And he lived his life knowing, and he was also a career fireman. He could pass in the line of duty at work. So he knew at home, he was at peace with his family. At work, he was at peace with his family. 
but he's also in, in great physical shape, you know, just for the job and, and just the way. So mentally he had it physically. And then when he got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, nothing changed. I mean, yeah, the, there's this shock, I think, a bit initially, and he mentioned this, you know, that he had this like, wow, like, you know, and for about a day or whatever time it needed to get through saying, okay, but I'm gonna still live my life. And the things that he was doing, he was still able now, granted, he didn't work out the way he did before he was diagnosed, but from a mental aspect, nothing changed. And I think it's it's so interesting, and I'd love to do a research study at some point because everyone we've talked to, I just had a guy on yesterday, young guy, 39, down in Missouri, who will his episode will air right around your episode. Same thing. He was he was a runner in high school, runner in college, started a family, got a little bit out of shape, got back into shape, and then gets the diagnoses. But he hasn't changed anything. You know, he he's still now he it, the volume has changed. But, you know, mentally he was prepared almost for this. Not to say that we we don't want to, I don't want to say that anyone is is ready for this because I, I think that's probably poor terminology, but the things that you're doing in your life, the things that you've done in your life prepare you for this moment and then you, you tackle it and then you kind of, or put together a plan and then go and tackle this thing. So it's just so fascinating to me to just hear you talk and just talk. That's why we asked the questions about your experience because it's so fascinating to me, Ray, that it's almost like you've done all these things in your life to prepare you for this moment, not knowing almost in a way, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Two quick thoughts. One is a theme song of Across the Universe by the Beatles uh, comes to mind all the time as you know, the, the chorus, nothing's going to change my world, mm -hmm. uh, has been <laughs> something I lean on, um, a lot. Um, and I guess the other one is if we've lived a good life, then, so as Mark Twain would say, you know, fear of death is fear of life. And if you live a good life, then you're, ready to die any day with no regrets, paraphrasing and butchering Mark Trayden. Yeah. And none of us know what will happen in the moments that require courage. Um, I think of the guys like on that, what was the movie? Uh, the 9-11 flight, United 83 or 93, whatever yeah, it was. I know the movie. I, I don't just, remember yeah, the title. What, what you do when the circumstances strike. None of us know, but we hope that we approach it with courage and dignity. And I think that's, whatever happens from here out, that's still my goal. Courage and dignity and, you know, teach and learn and share as much as I can along the way. And uh, that's just a recipe for well-being as, as far as I can tell. And that's something that you've had your whole life though, right? Because you went to the Peace Corps in 30 years ago and that's not something that, you know, I know yeah. there's not there's not many kids uh, coming out of school that say, ah, I'm going to go to the Peace Corps. I think, you know, uh, this third world country has got a great beach. They got they got great Wi-Fi. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to make a joke of it, but I'm sure, you know, that that's something that's kind of ingrained. I mean, that's not something that happens overnight, the way you're talking. I guess maybe I'll... I'll uh, but the transition moment, like, so 
you know, prior to this, I, I, I didn't think about this deliberately, but I did think about life is just open-ended and, mm-hmm. you know, I was just working hard, uh, trying to, trying to build my business and trying to, you know, think about future for my wife and kids and myself, like, and then this hits and all those long-term efforts and willpower, all my willpower that was going into my long-term term efforts kind of felt futile and I had to shift it into short-term efforts. Um, and maybe those skills transitioned over. Maybe you're right. It's hard to say. It's fascinating to me. I mean, I, I just say from my perspective, Ray, you know, I, 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 as I said, we've talked to so many, uh, and it's just interesting to see that arc and, and it's, it's, I'd love to do a study on it. Cause I think there's something behind it. Um, not to say that it would lead to anything, uh, you know, diagnostically, but it's just really fascinating to me. Um, maybe that's, you know, the, the mindset for a lot of people who knows. I don't know. Yeah. Well, maybe playing with your idea a little bit, if somebody could run through a thought experiment to this, you know yeah. how they do like immersive experiences um, as a thought experiment, then maybe people could come out with, <clears throat> excuse me, a freshened perspective on life, having had to go through the thought experiment of you've only got 18 months on average, yeah. what would you do? And that, that's a question I like to pose to people like, well, what would you do differently? Because somebody could transform their lives or fix their relationships um, if they just realize, like, wait a minute, I, I, like, what if you're on the plane and, and, you know, the terrorists are on the plane and you're going to call someone? What, what do you want that conversation to be about? And you could do that experiment without having to get cancer to be on a hijacked airplane and fix a lot of things in a lot of people's lives uh, for the greater good, I believe. The world would be a whole better place, in my opinion. The world would be a better place. Um, Dino, if I can shift back to something you said about the Fitbits. uh, My son at one point researched and said that he found some article about the connection between people who have Fitbits and survivability. And... uh, I believe anecdotally, anecdotally that that's true because uh, how these Fitbits and, in my case, a Garmin, and before that a TomTom, yeah. would motivate me to get up and get out and do stuff, and and achieve you know five miles of walking a day. And uh, uh, one last angle for you to, I, I don't know, whatever, is um, I would love to see a study about people with dogs. And survivability, because uh, again, laying on the couch, feeling rotten with chemo, and my dog comes over and looks at me and says, "Can we go out?" And you know, please, can we go for a hike? You know, you can see it in his eyes. Um, that got me up and moving more than once, and I just think that's crucial. That the notion of just keep moving, just keep going, just take a quarter mile hike if that's all you can manage every day during the treatment. And the, your ordeal is just so much to your physical and mental and spiritual well-being um, that I would just love to see how that correlates as well. Well, I think both your points there are, are important ones. I have seen some studies about certain metrics related to heart rate um, that do 
kind of what you just mentioned in terms of they do back up. There's, I mean, there's some data out there. There's just not enough of it. Um, and I think, you know, again, there's so much happening in these last five years and, and not a lot of it's been published. Uh, but there is information out there in, in a small sampling about heart rate, which is related to activity, whether that's walking or leading a sedentary life or being in an active, being in an active life, right? So um, that's something that I, I've seen uh, on both ends from, uh, you know, whether it's been Fitbit or Apple that, you know, they have looked at activity and related to heart rate and how that is uh, benefiting people. And, you know, even people with cancer and advanced cancer, you know, how that relates. And I, the, the, the animal thing is fascinating to me. And I, and I, I've seen it personally when my dad was sick, we have a dog and the dog was like so clingy to my dad, uh, when he wasn't a dog person, you know, and how that, that, uh, that relationship with animals and, and, you know, just the, not, you know, only from the nurturing side and compassion side that an animal can provide someone who's battling, but also, like you said, the impetus to get up and go take the dog for a walk, right? Because the dog wants to go for the walk and the dog may know like, hey, like the walk is gonna do you good. Um, it's fascinating. I'd love to see, I don't know, I've never seen anything on that directly, but I'd have to dig a little bit further to see, um, you know, the benefit. There, there might be something out there, you know, in terms of benefits of, you know, people who had cancer and how they fared with, that had animals and didn't have animals. I'm sure someone's done some sort of study that correlates possibly. Yeah. If they haven't, I would I would kind of be a little bit dumbfounded because I would think in this day and age, you know, with, with you know, I mean, they bring the therapy dogs into the hospitals all the time. So I guarantee there's maybe been some sort of study about, you know, patients and how they've responded, you know, the, the response after, you know, having a session with these therapy dogs that, you know, are in hospitals yeah. all the time. You know, there's a, they wouldn't bring, you know, let's put it this way. There has to be data on this because they wouldn't bring a dog into the hospital. Someone has thought about that. I've got to think. And if they but haven't. It, it might be a instinct rather than a, like, data. so this is funny, Dino. I didn't mean to go here. No, but, no, no. Um, the reason we have this dog is we didn't want a full-time dog and we took on the weekend service dog raising role. Oh, so cool. Yeah, where the, the dogs are raised in the prison during the week, and then they come out to get socialized by people like us on the yeah. weekends. And our, our dog dropped out. He was our, what, maybe our third or fourth. We did five dogs, two graduated. He dropped out, and the others dropped out. But uh, we adopted him, and he's just he, he dropped out because he couldn't hold his water. He would leak in, oh. on the floor. And, you know, we were like, well, we have wood floors, and... You know, we've had him for a year. We can't not adopt him. So um, he still has the capacity and desire to serve. Serve, yeah. Bred for it. So we made him, excuse me, we, we registered him. We got him tested and registered as a therapy dog, which is not the uh -oh. same thing as a service dog. And so as a service dog, he's allowed to go into public spaces. As a therapy dog, he needs to be invited into public spaces, like restaurants or hospitals. Yeah. And he did come into the hospital while I was recovering from the Whipple. Oh. And people just turn inside out yeah. for him. And people who are bed-bound and listless come to life. Yeah. So it's certainly an effect. It may be a point effect. I don't know. 
but I wish someone would study it. I don't know who would fund it, but somebody should study it. I, I got to sure think is that a lot better. Yeah, go ahead. No, I, I've got to think that they have done someone. Someone along the way has done something along the lines because, I mean, in the last ten years. I mean, the therapy dog, I mean, now they're everywhere. You know, anytime there's, a, you know, some sort of mass tragedy, you know, they bring in the therapy dogs or, you know, even locally. True. I know in, in high schools, like, you know, when parents will pass away, you know, usually typically because uh, I have a son in high school, I know there was an incident two years ago and they brought the therapy dogs into the school, you know, to deal with the the grieving and, and the processing of, of death. So there's there's got to be data behind it. I would imagine the people maybe possibly that are involved in the business of, uh, you know, the the therapy dog and the service dog arena probably have done some sort of uh, data on it. And you know, I, I think, you know, there is the compassion side of it. You know, everyone sees the nice dog, but there, there's got to be data to back that up uh, because it's so in use. And maybe you know the other thing that may may have come about it too, Ray. Just just uh, my last point on this is. Um, you know, with the military and all, I know that the the veterans who come back from the wars, um, you know, have these uh, PTSD dogs, you know, so I guarantee, and there's always, you know, that's the one thing with the budget, there's always been money in the, in the, the defense budget. Thankfully this year, I don't know if you saw, but just recently, you know, pancreatic cancer got $6 million line item. First time ever that the, the pancreatic cancer has received its own line item for research and it came via the DOD. So um, I've got to think possibly maybe even the DOD may have done some sort of research on it to back up the point of like, hey, giving a, a veteran, uh, you know, a PTSD dog or a service dog or a therapy mm -hmm. dog has this type of benefit in it and, you know, using that. Yeah, so. um, a little bit further is, um, you know, dogs can be trained to sniff out uh, epileptic attacks yeah. before they have yeah. happened. So I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, somebody could study and, uh, you know, dogs could smell changes in people. Uh, I don't know, but. Well, they, they um, you know, if we have a device like a Fitbit that tells us something's going on and if the dogs have this innate yeah. sense of knowing something's going on, they can sniff, you know, bombs, mm -hmm. they can know like when people are getting seizures. And I mean, you know, hey, if we look back in history, you know, animals are aware of, you know, when tsunamis are coming, you know, before anyone can even see them or sense them, they're up already running True. to high ground. So, you know, there's that inerrant sense that, that animals have mm -hmm. that potentially, uh, you know, could benefit us. So it's really fascinating. What's your dog's name now that we've talked so much about him, Ray? <laughs> His name is Maddie. Maddie. And, uh, yeah, he's a black lab. Awesome. I have a yellow lab, so I, I am uh, partial to labs, and we adopted ours from uh, from the south, and uh, just been a great great breed. Yes, uh, couldn't agree more. You gotta love the. You know, um, good. No, you gotta love the the, the fur, the the the, uh, the shedding that goes on. Always gotta have that limp brush lying around somewhere before you leave the house. But other than oh, that, yeah. they're they're amazing breeds. Yeah, that and uh, you know we got one of those little. Uh, robotic vacuums. Yeah, yeah, the Roombas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got one of those too. That's so funny. That's you know, so... we're probably near your end of time, uh, but it, I would love to hear more and think more about the funding aspect too, because um, a lot of people will ask, you know, they first of all, they want to know the symptoms, but second of all, they want to know what causes it. Yeah. And the, most of the responses I get from doctors that I ask, they say, we don't know, we think it's environmental. 
or some combination of environmental and genetics or just, you know, unfortunate luck, you get hit by a cosmic ray or some, you know, side effect radiation. Um, and to hear that there's only $6 million, on the one hand, you said it's the first time, but that just, for something that strikes, what is it, like 10,000 Americans a year? No, it's actually, you know, the new numbers just came out and it's uh, 57,000. You know, so a, a year, a year, wow. yeah. So it's it's pretty staggering. I mean, so there is money in the NIH budget, um, and the NIH controls this, you know, large uh, treasure trove of, of funds. You know, the government funds about eighty percent of cancer research in the United States, which a lot of people don't necessarily understand the, you know, the impact that the government has in science. Um, so the six million that was just allocated is is the first of its kind special designated grant for pancreatic cancer via the DoD. So it's a little bit outside of the normal realm. And, you know, the Department of Defense um, funds clinical research for various other diseases that impact, um, you know, veterans and, and the like. So uh, that's something that is new and unique, and, and we're excited about it. I mean, it's a start. Um, I don't think it's what what's warranted, but beggars can't be choosers, um, Ray. And, and that's something that, uh, you know, it, it, we, we don't do a lot of legislative advocacy. Um, you know, as a group, but it's helping to bring awareness. There's other groups that are really, really um, in the trenches trying to find money in DC for the disease, and I commend them for their efforts. Uh, but it's it's a long uphill battle, especially today and in the political environment we have um, for the pure obvious. So, you know, I think that's what you said. Um, you know, I, I think genetics, we are starting to understand more and more. We do know that there's a high risk for certain genetic types. Um, unfortunately, people aren't, you know, it's it's like your, your family. You're, you're given your genes and you're given your family. You don't get to choose them because um, they're passed on generationally. So that's something that um, we have identified. I think science has gotten better in identifying certain genes that are at a higher risk. And if we can screen and monitor those high-risk patients, we can hopefully for the folks that do get the disease or any disease for that matter, get it early on. And that's something that we've been really critical on funding here at Project Purple is that early detection piece with these high risk groups. So to your point, I think you mentioned early on, there's a lot going on and hopefully we see in the next five to 10 years, you know, this massive influx of better treatments, early detection and more understanding. And, and I think something that I said, like a roadmap, you know, and I think that's what this disease lacks um, in a lot of diseases, but, you know, a better roadmap and, you know, identifying patients that are at high risk, identifying symptoms so that, uh, you know, someone who has this, this rock in their abdomen can go to a clinician, be diagnosed right away and know that, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're know what they're dealing with. So I think there's going to be a lot that happens. It's exciting time. I know it doesn't help anyone who gets diagnosed today, uh, but hopefully, you know, their advances in the next couple months, years, uh, hopefully sooner than later for many. Uh, and that's the ultimate goal. I do have a couple of questions and I still have some time if you're good, Ray. I don't want to... Sure, go ahead. Yeah. So one, one, my first question here, you mentioned Dr. Google and the internet. And this is an important topic because as we mentioned before... I think, you know, human nature, and I think we've all been, maybe we've, we've all drinking the Kool-Aid that the internet's, the, you know, it's 
was it Al Gore who uh, takes credit for the internet or maybe it was Bush? I forget what there's like, that's a little bit of a joke because I think both of them kind of take credit for it or maybe Bill Clinton. I don't remember. But, you know, the internet, I think we've all drinking the Kool-Aid is kind of the, you know, for some people, the end all be all in terms of information gathering, right? Like everything, if it's on the internet, then it's a hundred percent accurate, you know, and why doubt it? But you, what you said before was that Dr. Google and, and staying off the internet, was that something that has always kind of been an ideology or something that you learned early on or something that someone kind of advised you to do? Good question. Um, a friend of mine got uh, prostate cancer and he had, he was ahead of me by a few months in his own trial and surgery. And so he kind of gave me a little bit of mentoring about um, only he said something like, only look at the odds if you're using the odds to make a decision. And that I found to be incredibly valuable uh, advice. And then I, I don't remember where I got the phrase, beware of Dr. Google, I, whether I coined it or I just heard it somewhere and it stuck. But, you know, to make those decisions based on, on you know, to, to look at odds to make decisions is one very valuable thing. And then to recognize that what's out there on Google is unfiltered, unsorted, unstratified data that might apply to you or it might not. Yeah. Um, if you look at pancreatic cancer data, most of it is from the last, you know, uh, naturally from, let's say, one to 20 years old. But things have changed so dramatically in the last five years that that might not be relevant to to a given person's case. Um, and then even within that, there's stratification that, um, you know, you're, you're 40 years old. That's different than somebody who's 78. Uh, you're in shape. That's different than somebody who's not used to that. It, you have support. That's different from someone who's living alone, et cetera. So that unfiltered, unstratified data can just cause so much anxiety um, that it's not worth looking at unless you're trying to make a decision. Should I have this surgery or not? Should I do this trial or not? And even then, you're better off talking to your doctors, who don't want to talk about odds, by yeah. the way, but they'll they'll talk about risks and benefits. And I think that's a better way to look at things. It's an important message, I think, that our audience listening at home uh, can take to heart because I think you, what you just said is is so powerful um, because I think there's um, knowledge is power when used in the right way. And clearly there's a lot of information and knowledge on the internet, but how you interpret that, how you use it is really the critical piece. My next question and something that you just said, you know, friend, how important has, you know, relationships and friends been in, in you know, your journey here? Uh, certainly crucial. Um, like this one friend there, John, you know, who, uh, very smart guy, very savvy in so many ways and, uh, just had great advice. And he and I both, we meet regularly now and talk about how can we continue to share this? How can we mentor people? Because, um, that was something that was missing as I went into this. It was, it was, I descended, I checked into the emergency room and a week and a half later, I've got stage three pancreatic cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. 
having some framework of how to rebuild your life after the bottom just dropped out, um, some mentoring, it's crucial. I think if there, there were a system that a mentor could be matched really quickly to people early in their diagnosis would get people going in the right direction sooner and teaching them about these additional mindset and well-being resources and mm-hmm. nutrition, et cetera. Because I made a bunch of false starts down blind alleys. And everyone and their brother wants to tell you about the magic uh, weed that you can smoke. And it'll, <laughs> by the way, uh, cure everybody. CBD, oh yeah. Um, some other exotic flower, some tea, just these random things that I would get frustrated at because like, if you can't show me some kind of science or some kind of correlation, then it's just alchemy to me. And so um, if you'll bear with me for a second, I would like to advise people to, I know your well-being, but stay away from sharing your tricks with cancer patients. And please don't start any kind of response to someone who acknowledges they have cancer with a statement that starts with at least please don't do that so would you say then ray that some and this was my second part of this question because we get this often and i think it's it's fascinating to hear from the patient perspective so what's the best thing a friend can do for someone Mm. who's been diagnosed and i think you may have just answered part of that but i'd love Mm -hmm. to hear you answer it well, I understand that a lot of people don't know what to say, and I didn't know what to say. Uh, I told you I was sort of like the engineer type, an yeah. introvert type. Uh, if I don't have direct experience, it's a little harder for me to talk about it. But now I can share with you that some of the things that I think are good to say or okay to say are, you know, one of my friends said, shit, that sucks. <laughs> and like, okay, you're right. Uh, another one, you know, just, said, well, how are you doing with it? And those are okay. Yeah. <clears throat> and I'm the type that I would, I relish in, well, I don't relish in it, but I, I will, I don't shy from diving into the technicalities and the, the medicine about it. So I'm happy to talk about that either from people who have more experience than I do or from my experience. And I also like to hear stories about other types of cancer I hated hearing people tell me like, oh, well, I know X and X had pancreatic cancer and he did this and now he's fine. And I I didn't want to hear those stories because it's too close to home and the the circumstances wouldn't be the same. And I found that if people were talking about pancreatic cancer, I was naturally comparing myself and I was either worse than them, which made me feel worse, or I was better than them, which made me feel worse because I felt guilty and bad for them. Hmm. So I didn't want to hear about other people with pancreatic cancer um, from lay persons. Um, I would rather talk to somebody about breast cancer and our common experience of radiation than I wanted to talk to another person about pancreatic cancer and where they were because it's just too hard to compare relatively. And about the statement of at least, you know, people mean well, but they say at least your kids are older, at least you're 
in your 50s, you know, at least it's not X cancer. Like those are well-meaning, but poorly placed. And so I I learned to just go, yep, you're right. Thank you for the sentiment. Um, Because again, I didn't want to, you know, trigger negative emotions in myself. And I certainly didn't want to make people feel bad. But I share it as knowledge for people to think about, um, you know, when they're approaching someone with cancer. Don't, you know, not saying something is awkward, too, because, like, you know, I've, I've known some people for years, and I can see it in their eyes. They don't know what to say. And just to be able to say, here's the final ultimate thing you can say, and that's simply, I don't know what to say. And that's, that's fine to say. Be normal. Be normal. Yeah. Just be honest. Just be real. Be empathetic. If you're not comfortable going into medicine or the emotional part of it, you don't have to just go, man, I don't know what to say. I'm sorry for you. Um, I'm here for you. That's that's fine. Has faith played a part in any of this, Ray? Well, I'm, I'm a more Unitarian type person, which means we don't have a specific dogma. We take lessons from all faiths. And uh, uh, I found that to be incredibly valuable because it's a community. Yeah. Um, in, in our community, uh, people share openly. And, you know, I shared openly and I got an immense response. Um, my, my sharing at my, quote, church was to... You know, they, they do these candles, which I'm not really that type of person that gets mm-hmm. up and lights them very often. But about a year ago, I got up and lit one and said, well, my circumstances are pancreatic cancer, and my concern is what I'm going to plant in the garden this year, because um, that's really how I saw it. And that resonated with a lot of people who came back and said, yeah, that's we can understand that. Um, and my reverend... Uh, Reverend Eric Cherry invited me to do a sermon even on it. And so I did that and uh, I posted that. I don't know if you saw that, but you contacted me on Twitter and I had posted my text on Twitter just because um, I don't think I have volumes of sermons in me, but I had one in me. And I I felt like, um, again, in in the spirit of what you do with Project Purple, I wanted to share it. And, you know, as broadly as possible. Uh, so I put those into words and put it into sermon, which I shared, and I feel like it's helped people as well, I hope. That's my hope. Well, I think faith has become a part, regardless of who you believe in. And this was a discussion we had yesterday uh, for, for many, if not all, the survivors we had and regardless of whether you're Roman Catholic, Jewish, uh, Islam, you know, there, there's some higher being and grounding. Well, I would put it back into the transcendentalist. That's where my spiritual transformation went. Uh, reading Thoreau and Emerson and Mark Twain a little bit and the thoughts they had about life and living meaningfully. Um, I, told you I spent time in Thailand, so I had Buddhist exposure and the notion of trying to achieve perfection here in this life. Um, I'm not, I remember Bertrand Russell, Bertrand Russell wrote, you know, death isn't a concern for the 
dead because the living are not and the dead are no more. So I use that to think about how do we live today now? And I'm a little bit more of an agnostic in a lot of my approaches, mm-hmm. um, which I have to say Stephen Colbert says really is an atheist without balls. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I rather it. think of it, you can cut that one or use it. No, I don't no, we, we keep it all. We keep it all. I like that. <laughs> but uh, it's more about, it's not your concern. It's not my concern. My concern is what can I do in my relationships and my well-being today, and the rest will take care of itself. So I focus on those transcendentalist-type thinking and try to make my mindfulness become part of my day-to-day being and my you know, being present and you know, watching the word, keeping a good word, and uh, keeping you know, your words clear, uh, not, not disparaging, not gossiping. Those those are a little bit of a transformational element from the spiritual perspective. Just that I thought about them so much more deliberately and urgently after this experience or during this experience. Well, it's what you said originally. I, I, again, I've been taking notes, but living intentionally in positive ways to lead a good life. You know, so you know, it's, if it's, you it's... look at the world's tradition, and I was raised Roman Catholic, and you know, my Irish Catholic grandmother would have said to keep clear of the seven deadly sins, and those are transformational into keeping your word clean and keeping from, you know, rage and and jealousy and envy, and I can't remember the others, but they are totally useful, even though I repackage them into modern, less religious ways of being. They're more social mm-hmm. and essential to being a person in a community. So those things still stick with me. It's powerful. Last question mm-hmm. for you, Ray, is sure. how do you define pancreatic cancer? What's your definition of pancreatic cancer? Um, I guess I'd be more clinical about it. It's a mass in the pancreas of cells that are reproducing abnormally. So I think of it as a diagnosis, not a label. I am not a person. I am not pancreatic cancer, and that was one of my initial reactions to being on the website of Mass General or uh, Newton Wellesley, actually, or to publishing it, that I didn't want to be a poster child. But in the end, uh, I don't mind my story getting out there. I just don't. It's not me. It's not my label. It's a diagnosis that I have. It's my circumstances. So I would define it like that. Perfect. There's no right or wrong. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's just, it's again, going back to what I just said, how you've lived your life and intentionally in a positive way. I think you just summed it up once again. Ray, last question, and and probably one of the most important for our listeners at home. If there's someone that has listened to this podcast and wants to connect with you, maybe they have a loved one going through it, or maybe it is that person that's going through it and something inspired them as they listen to this podcast to reach out to you. I know you mentioned Twitter. I know you're on LinkedIn. What's the best way for someone to connect with you and maybe learn more about your story or talk to you about your experience? Mm-hmm. Um, either of those are fine. On the Newton Wellesley website is my story. Uh, it written as copy, you know, um, 
But I'm happy they can go to Twitter and read my, you know, four page quote sermon, too heavy a word for me, but my story and perfectly willing to talk and they can connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter and we can we can talk and I'll share whatever I can to help people um, get to the best place with this. So on Twitter, I have your Twitter profile up. It's Ray. R-A-Y underscore Angeloni, which uh, we'll spell that here, is A-N. It's spelled Angel One. Angel One. Angeloni. I love that. And then on uh, LinkedIn, you're also uh, Ray Angeloni, but no underscore. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's the best place for people to connect with you. Ray, thank you for being on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you for sharing your story of living intentionally in positive ways. And something else that I wrote here, uh, that I had in again, quotation marks is just keep moving. So, so powerful for our audience to mm-hmm. hear. I uh, appreciate everything you've done for us here in the last hour and 20 minutes, sharing your story uh, of hope and positivity for those listening at home. So thank you for being a guest on the project purple podcast. And as we say, that's a wrap of another episode here at the project purple podcast. If you love what you hear, Please share, follow us, and thanks for listening. Thank you, Dino. Thank you for what you do and for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. Mm